WFYI podcast brought to you by Bloomington, Indiana, an American college town offering food and drink, college sports, outdoor activities, live music, cool art, and good times daily. Everyone is welcome in Bloomington. More information at visitbloomington.com. A Democrat in the Senate race, Curtis Hill for governor, plus the latest school voucher report and more. From the television studios at WFYI, it's Indiana Week in Review for the week ending June 16th, 2023. Indiana Week in Review is made possible by the supporters of Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations. This week, former longtime alcohol lobbyist Mark Carmichael is Indiana Democrats' first candidate this cycle to announce a bid for U.S. Senate. Carmichael would face an uphill battle against the likely Republican candidate, Congressman Jim Banks. Carmichael spent nearly five years in the Indiana House of Representatives in the late 80s and early 90s. He also ran an unsuccessful campaign for Congress in 1996. Carmichael spent two decades as head of the Indiana Beverage Alliance, a trade association for beer distributors, before retiring in 2020. In a statement announcing his candidacy, the Democrat laid out 10 policy positions he'd work towards as a U.S. senator, chief among them codifying abortion rights. He says he'll also seek to ban, in his words, military-style assault weapons, take immediate action on climate change, and support LGBTQ youth. The last Indiana Democrat to win a race for U.S. Senate was Joe Donnelly more than a decade ago. Does Carmichael have any shot to beat Jim Banks? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat Ann Delaney. Republican Chris Mitchum. John Schwanis, host of Indiana Lawmakers. And Nikki Kelly, editor-in-chief of the Indiana Capitol Chronicle. I'm Indiana Public Broadcasting Statehouse Bureau Chief Brandon Smith. Ann Delaney, is Carmichael the kind of candidate who has a chance to upset Banks? Well, I don't think anybody should underestimate Mark. I mean, remember, he beat a sitting Speaker of the House by hard work and was outraised by that speaker as well. So you should never underestimate him. And there could not, if he's the nominee, there could not be a bigger contrast between the positions. He knows Joe Biden won the election. He knows those weren't tourists on January 6th. He doesn't think a 10-year-old should have to carry her rapist's fetus to term. Those things are going to mark, and he doesn't think automatic weapons ought to be issued to everybody and then wonder why the crime rate goes up. So I think you're going to see a marked positional contrast between the two of them. And I think that that Mark's positions on these issues more reflect the average Hoosier than does Jim Banks, who is to the right of Attila the Hun on virtually every issue. (laughs) Obviously, as I mentioned, an uphill battle here for any Democrat in this state running statewide at this point. We've seen that over the last several cycles. Um, But is, is Mark Carmichael the kind of person that Democrats, A, know or B, will get excited about? It's the excited portion just because, I mean, he is very well known within the state house, within the lobbying world. I've had the opportunity to work with him. And I think he was very successful, especially in his role with the Indiana Beverage Alliance. A lot of the alcohol policies you see today is because of Mark Carmichael, going back to how I don't know that that's going to help him necessarily (laughs) with the average I think most Hoosiers drink, too. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But to that point, he worked hard and he made that alliance what it is today. Now, I think from a political standpoint, um, I think he needs to kind of I try to adopt more of the Joe Donnelly model. I know a lot of people can say that Joe Donnelly might have been a, a, a product of the environment whenever he was running. But, I mean, a lot of his stances, if you want to appeal to those people that may be turned off by the banks 
far right, January 6th, election fraud, all that kind of things. You're not going to do it by coming out and saying that I want Medicare for all. I think we should codify Roe v. Wade and, you know, versus Joe Donnelly, who came out during his campaign and said, I don't want state funded tax dollars to go to abortions. I think we should fund the border wall at the South. So I think it could call well, for a Roe v. Wade doesn't put state funding into abortion. Well, I, I doubt no. that's something Joe Donnelly would come out and support. Well, though, I don't think I don't think that uh, Mark Carmichael supported state funding for abortions either. No, but he, he did support codifying Roe v. Wade. Roe yeah. v. Wade. And I think most Hoosiers would agree with that in let, some form. Let me ask this. It's the same sort of question, honestly, John, which is, you know, I think Chris just hit it on the head. Mark Carmichael is a name that those of us around this table know very well. Maybe some of the viewers of this show know very well. But if you go outside of that, I don't think he's going to be a household name. Now, there's a long time until the election. Is he the sort of candidate who can build up name recognition and get people excited about his candidacy? I think you have to have the foundation that you just described, the ability to ring the cash register, the ability to uh, put together a grassroots organization, because this is a big state, and uh, you can't just rely on a commercial here and a commercial there. An air war is powerful, but it's not the only game in town. So there are two kind of candidates. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there's somebody in the middle, but there are those who have great name ID, and think they can just waltz into office based on their name ID, say they come out of the realm of business or sports or, or whatever. Uh, but they, they get there and they realize, oh, i got to make money or mm-hmm. uh, ring the cash register. I have to put together an organization. I have to do all this stuff. Or you have the candidate who may not have uh, high name recognition at this point statewide among Hoosier voters, but who knows how to do all those things and can call in the IOUs and does have that sort of respect within the governmental and political uh, arena. I think that's probably more important, uh, that latter, and he, he would have that. I mean, and he's been around. He's, he's collected a lot of IOUs. I'm, I'm old enough to remember covering him when he was in the House. And that photo that everybody, those who were watching on television, probably giggled at, that that's how I still remember him. So. <laughs> I think the problem for Democrats, and this is, I mean, it's not a shock to anybody, is listening to John just describe those two types of candidates. I think Democrats have seen those two types of candidates run for the U.S. Senate in recent years. One of them, the first one, was Evan Bayh. Tons of name recognition, didn't run a very good campaign in 2016. And then you had Joe Donnelly, who actually had name recognition, but more than that, knew how, already had an organization in place and knew how to build it out, worked as hard as any human being can work at that job and at that campaign, and he still lost. So realistically... Do Democrats have a shot at this seat? Uphill battle is a nice way to say it. Um, obviously, like I had a number of Democrats reach out who were who have no idea who Mark Carmichael is. I mean, outside this sort of small fishbowl, he's a complete unknown in most of the state. So, I mean, he he's going to have to have a ton of IOUs to make that happen. Well, history- um, I, I am hoping, though, that... I mean, maybe he'll at least level up the debate a little, you know, with banks and and try to, you know, get at some, make banks basically work hard for it and maybe have to moderate And I think Jim Banks is willing to work hard. There's no evidence to the contrary. Yeah, but but his positions are not what the average Hoosier wants. And I think if to the extent that Mark but are raises they, the but money... But are they at this point what the average Hoosier voter wants? Because well, those I, are two different populations. I, I, I know that, but I, I still think if you, for example, on the 10-year-old, I think if you polled on that, uh, the Democratic position on that would win, okay? Hands down. And yet 
Banks is going to articulate a position that Similarly, no though, abortions. You could say the same thing the other way. If you poll on transgender sports, for instance, it polls the Republican way, you know, regardless of whether... Or, 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 or quite frankly, fewer guns. people, right. fewer frankly people guns. are going to cast their vote only on and, transgender and it, sports. You know what? It doesn't... More women are going to think that voters vote are out there, you know, thinking about reflecting on their views and coming to some sort of mental consensus about what should take place in our society, and then they yeah. compare that with the candidate. That doesn't happen. I mean, basically, people emerge from under the rock, a lot of people, and then they go and they... Well, that's they, true, the Republican they candidates. Put, and then they that. say R or the numbers. I mean, and yeah. that's, and that's what, yeah. sadly what it comes down to. All right. Well, speaking not of the Senate race, but now the governor's race, former Indiana Attorney General Curtis Hill recently told the Associated Press he's considering a run for governor. Hill was defeated in his re-election bid for AG in 2020 after the Indiana Supreme Court said he criminally battered four women. Hill also lost in a Republican caucus last year to replace Congresswoman Jackie Walorski after her death. In a statement to the AP, the former Elkhart County prosecutor said Indiana needs a strong conservative who has the guts to challenge what he called the Indianapolis status quo. If he runs, Hill would join an already crowded Republican field that includes U.S. Senator Mike Braun, Lieutenant Governor Suzanne Crouch, Fort Wayne businessman Eric Doden, and Jamie Rittenauer. Chris Mitchum, this is not like, it's a wide open primary, Governor Holcomb is term limited, but there's already some real big yeah. names in it. Is there a path for Curtis Hill in this primary? There's a path. There's always a path for anybody to hops in, but how wide that path is is certainly up for discussion. And I think the path you saw when uh, in the, uh, the second congressional district to replace Jackie Walorski, um, Curtis Hill finished in second. Now, he did get into the race kind of late, and he finished a distant second, but that shows you that he has a base. The people that still remind the, are uh, still familiar with him when he ran for AG and when he got the most votes in the state for that race, he has a base. Now, can he translate that base to the governor's, to governor's race? I'm not sure. I personally believe if it wasn't for his past transgressions, you could be talking about the front runner, Curtis Hill, because that's just how popular he was. So can he translate that to the governor's race? I'm not sure. And you have a lot of money already in that race. A lot of people that already have kind of taken the sides on the political spectrum. Where would he come in? Would he push it further right? Most likely because that's kind of where he got his credibility in the first place was being further right on these social issues, which could kind of access a, a new pot of money for him, per se. So there's certainly a path, but it may be a little too late just by how established the three front runners already are. I completely agree with Chris when he says, you know, if not for um, the transgressions, he, I think he would be the front runner, absolutely, because he was incredibly popular and a rising star. But, and it's a very large but, those transgressions are going to weigh him down. Are they enough to weigh him down to keep him out of Well, the- Republicans have a bit of a history of nominating gropers. If we remember the tapes from uh, uh, Donald, Prent- uh, Donald Trump's first run in, in, uh, de- in, uh, in Hollywood. So I, I don't think it's going to necessarily be a uh, detriment. And whenever you, you have a primary that is that wide open and you have a finite amount of voters in there, uh, anything can happen. And is it possible they would nominate him after what the Supreme Court said about him criminally abusing women? Absolutely. Does Curtis, uh, does Curtis Hill have a path in the primary? Ooh, I think if uh, maybe if Ron or Crouch weren't in, yes. But I, I don't know how he overcomes their, A, money that they've raised, their name ID, and, of course, the issues with him, you know, harassing, touching women inappropriately. Um, so 
Yeah, I, I don't. I don't see him getting past the front runners. To me, the biggest thing here is. I mean, I think Chris articulated it, which is there is. You know, if you think about Suzanne Crouch on the political um, campaign on the on the trail, has been trying to tack right because oh, that's that's trying. a yeah. that, that's that, that's a position she's never really articulated before now. Mike Braun is Mike Braun. Eric Doden, not hard right, nope. certainly not in, in, in what he says. And the outsider. Yeah, yeah. and the outsider. But there is a hard right base Lame. there yeah. that Curtis Hill already has quite a lot of influence with. But the money, the money, the money, the money. They're, you're facing self-funders and people who are going to gobble up a lot of just... There's a finite number of voters. There's also a finite number of, a, a amount of cash. Real, yeah, but, realistically, in, that's going to be put into this race. But you can reach that finite universe without television. It's not oh, that un, big. Un, but, but is he going but to he be able to, to compete? He needs to get in now. Yeah. <laughs> Dollars right about, and cents, is he going to be able to compete? Well, you're right about money. You hate to say that money is everything, but it is a big thing, uh, certainly in a race, a statewide race. He's not able to self-fund, I don't think, unless he's gotten, yeah, done something and won the lottery since we last spoke. Uh, so that puts him at a bit of a disadvantage. Getting into the game a little bit quote-unquote, late. Yeah, what used to be right on time. I know, yeah. What used to be right on time is now very late. rules. But, you know, there is, somebody alluded to this, there's an inverse correlation between predictability and number of people in the race. And just when you think you have something figured out, the more people get into that race, the predictability, the certainty goes goes opposite direction. Yeah, it's not like you're shooting for 50% of that. Yeah, Yeah, because then all of a sudden you're just looking at plurality. How dedicated your 30% is. That's what counts. And you see all kinds of horse trade. You know, it's, it's, uh, you know, I'll back out. I'm going to support you. I'll bring my people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you do do wonder how, how much his past transgressions did have an impact in that second congressional kind of private GOP race. Because when he was asked about it, right, and even dating back to the AG's office, he just said, uh, it's, it's fine. I mean, it wasn't fine, but, you know, that's in the past. We can move past that. And I'm not sure maybe if he tries to take a different approach of how to maybe try to kind of come back address to that. Address it more to, Yeah, to the address yeah. that people I mean, could be in pathway. To your point, he had a solid little base of support in that second district uh, precinct caucus or in that caucus, but... It was a distant second. I mean, Rudy Yakum won on yeah. the first ballot in a large field mm-hmm. of candidates, which is hard to do with that many candidates in a, in a private caucus. So we'll see. Time now for viewer feedback. Each week we post an unscientific online poll question. And this week's question is, can Curtis Hill win the Republican nomination for governor? A, yes, or B, no. Last week's question was, will Micah Beckwith be the GOP nominee for lieutenant governor? 14% of you say yes, 86% say no. I'm not sure I'm quite as confident of that. If you'd like to take part in the poll, go to wfyi.org IWIR and look for the poll. Indiana's voucher program to pay for student tuition at private and religious schools cost more taxpayer money than last year. WFYI's Eric Weddle reports students who received vouchers are also less racially diverse than the previous year. The school voucher program was originally intended to help low-income students. In the past decade, the state's Republican majority expanded eligibility. A new state report describes the average student now using a voucher as white and coming from a home with an income of $81,000. Indiana's median household income is much less than that. The report says more than 53,000 students used a voucher last school year. The program cost the state more than $300 million. Next month, a new law will make nearly all students eligible for a voucher. Thank you, Kelly.
quite frankly, especially after what the legislature just did this past session. Does it matter anymore who the voucher program serves? I mean, it matters in the sense of we need to know where the state dollars are going. I mean, for all intents and purposes, after the new law goes into effect July 1, it covers virtually every child in the state. Except the wealthiest of the wealthy. Correct. But, yeah, virtually. It's like 3% that yeah, it right. won't cover. Yeah. So, But I do think it is important for us to know who we're giving the money to. I mean, you know, if it ends up skewing even more all-white, all-rich, all, you know, mm-hmm. suburban, you know, I, I mean, at some point, it's an unfunded liability that's going to rival... Keep going. That's yeah. just going to keep rivaling the other, and so the, our traditional public schools. So, I hope that lawmakers read these reports. Although I'm pretty sure they would, at least Republicans would be pretty happy with it. Yeah, to that point, in, in the sense that does it matter who it serves? I guess the way I'll ask it to you, which is to Republicans, does it matter who it serves as long as whoever wants it gets it? Not to the people who envisioned this whole thing back, uh, you know, a decade ago, and, and were the architects of it. I think they'd be very happy to see uh, it be truly universal, which, again, for all practical purposes, it is. And if that means that families, uh, well-heeled families, are sending kids to private school using vouchers and they would have gone to those same schools otherwise, so be it. The question is, you know, there isn't any, you know, people are, one of the arguments we heard this session was it's, what, 93% of people go to public school. So we're only talking about 7%. Well, there's no... There's no cap. There's no guidelines. I remember no. when that was 2%. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and theoretically, yeah. I mean, let's play, in theory, if you had enough people getting into the education business, and they tend to draw the dollars in education tend to get people into the game, you could have 80%, again, not likely, you cost. could have it the other direction. Yeah. Uh, and then you don't roll it back because uh, the, that's the real challenge. Yeah. Uh, good you luck know, to anybody who goes and tells people, especially the well-heeled individuals who have political clout, and can say, you're trying to take away this hard-earned uh, benefit? It's not I, hard-earned. I'm, well, it's well, but the, the, so let me ask this. This, is, the, this breakdown was largely about who the student is. But is the more important question, especially now that it is virtually universal, is the more important go- question going to be outcomes? Are we actually serving these students that we are giving public dollars to as well as we could be if they were being served in a, in a public school? There was a push for that, right? I mean, Senator Ryan Mishler, the chairman of the Appropriations Committee, basically said he's not the biggest fan of this because there's no accountability. There's no outcome. We need to be focusing on these outcomes. And as of right now, I don't see the outcomes necessary in order to have this huge expansion of eligibility. So I definitely think there is a, a voice, not only Senator Mishler, but maybe those in the Senate caucus and maybe even some in the House Republicans as well that want to focus on the outcomes. And information like this is never bad. Yeah, it's exactly kind of what we expected, you know, more wealthy, typically more white people getting more, more involved in this. But I'm hoping with these numbers, we can also start talking about outreach and how, you know, if we do see that maybe the black population, um, you know, compared to the white person, yeah, disproportionately is not raising fast enough. That's where we can kind of start, ideally, targeting those, those, uh, those demographics to try to this, push this program this further. Is, this is a classic bait-and-switch Republican. Remember when this, this started? It was supposed to take poor kids out of failing schools. That's what it was supposed to do. Where are we now? We're now going to be subsidizing Park Tudor is what we're going to be doing. Okay? Park Tudor doesn't take vouchers. 
Oh, okay. Well, then <laughs> for now. Be, for now. For now, they don't. Huh? for now. That's on the rise but, as well. But that, yeah. that issue aside, I don't understand why rural Republicans put up with this. You know, you, you don't have choice in a lot of these rural counties. And what they're doing is taking money from the institutions that these people in rural counties value, their schools, and you're taking it away to put it into metropolitan areas and we, for rich people. And for the first time in the we more than decade since we finally saw that start to rear its head it in the Senate Republican Caucus and, this yeah. year. But let me ask you this, Nikki, because we just talked to uh, today, uh, this week, the Legislative Council met. We talked to Senator Rod Bray and Speaker Todd Houston about some things. And one of the things that Rod Bray, Roger Bray said, because it was one of the study committees, is... Um, the thing that keeps him up at night is Medicaid. It's the fastest growing part of the Indiana budget. Till now. And that's, no, no, that's absolutely true, certainly in the, in the dollars. But if we're talking about percentage increases, <laughs> yeah. the fastest growing part of the budget it's is the, the voucher vouchers. program. And that doesn't seem, well, the Senate's a little bit I mean, let's be the fair. They're Republicans, and so they're going to be more concerned about a program that's helping Rich. people they don't think are their voters than a program that is helping their voters. All right. General Motors this week finally announced a multi-billion dollar investment to build its electric vehicle battery plant in St. Joseph County. WBPE's Marek Mazurik reports on the decision's impact. General Motors and Samsung will build a battery plant on nearly 660 acres of land in western St. Joseph County, the companies announced on Tuesday. Estimates for the plant call for a $3.5 billion investment that will create thousands of construction jobs and around 1,600 full-time jobs once the plant is completed. Jeff Ray, who's the president of the South Bend Regional Chamber of Commerce, called the project a game-changer for the region's economy. The wages alone will um, generate an economic impact of over $600 million a year, uh, which is phenomenal. And, and so never in our lifetime have we seen a project that has that kind of an impact. Construction is expected to start this year, and the plant could be operational by 2026. John Schwannis, there was also news recently that 91 out of 92 Indiana counties trail the national average in wages. Only Marion County is just barely above the national average. Even accounting for cost of living, Indiana's not doing well. So how big is a project like this? toward reversing some of that trend. Well, it's certainly big in the county. I mean, now it'll be 90 versus 2 yeah, uh, right. instead of 91 versus 1. No, I, I, it, you, you love to see these kinds of announcements, and you hope we see more of these sorts of things. The onus now is on, on the state, and this is not a surprise to the administration and others who have said we have to make sure we have a workforce that can adapt to these uh, companies that come in with, with relatively high-paying jobs and so forth. We can't be in a situation where people show up we like your incentives. You know, thank you, State, for helping smooth the path. We're here. Hang out the sign, help wanted, and nobody who's qualified shows up. So that's the big, that's where the, 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 the part two of the challenge is. To, to that end, we've talked a lot about that issue. The legislature talks a lot about that issue. The governor talks a lot about that issue. But at the same time, you still have companies like this announcing this. And at the same time this week also, I think it was the, is it the GM plant in Fort Wayne is going to invest... More than $600 million to build out the plant they already have there that's going to be looking at electric vehicle manufacturing. That's the future. So at the same time these companies are saying, hey, you need to really focus on this, they're also coming here. What message should we be taking away from that? Well, I mean, you gotta, Indiana's not the only one struggling with workforce issues. That's so true. obviously, you know, they're making their decision based on a host of factors, not just that one. I will say, you know, having watched 
announcements like this for the last 25 years. There's always another announcement like this. But those wage numbers are really frustrating because despite announcement after announcement after announcement, we don't seem to ever move the needle in a way that helps Hoosiers yeah, we're still in comparison to the counties, other right. counties. Yeah, so or the other so states. So this is this is unquestionably good news. Right. How do we move the needle when we're getting these sorts of announcements? And this is not us. This is not in isolation. We keep getting announcements. Well, like and this. if we're going to continue to be the state that works for less. We've got to do something different, and part of that is comes from education. We ought to be funding pre-K education in this state. We should have been doing it 10 years ago. And, and yet now, when you can get a voucher making $220,000 a year, you can't get a preschool voucher if you're making, what, less than 30? Yeah. Or, or more than, than 30, excuse than me. It's ridiculous. Um, I, I will say that uh, it, it does seem like there is that, that, that gap exists, but... There seems to be a recognition at the state house that finally we, we need to be doing, you know, rising tide lifts all boats. Well, yeah, things. but we do it with little Lego right. stuff. Fi- finally, <laughs> Purdue and Indiana University officials this week formally agreed to separate IUPUI into two campuses next year IU Indianapolis and Purdue Indianapolis. Now, Andalini, there's still going to be an athletics program, but it seems like it should get a new name and mascot. So, what should it be? Well, first of all, this is a great thing for Indianapolis. And Richard Luger pushed for this 30 years ago, and when we talk about Lego steps, I don't know that they needed a mascot at all. I mean, IU's got the candy stripe and served them pretty darn well. Maybe they could do it horizontally instead of vertically. (laughs) Horizontal candy stripes instead of vertical. I'm not sure there's enough distinct branding. Doesn't make you look thin. Nikki, you had had one for us. I mean, Fort Wayne went with the mastodon, so I think maybe following in that tradition, maybe the fireflies because we did state insect. Though I don't think that's very, like, menacing or... I don't know. You can make a menacing firefly. In Stanford, you have the trees, which is hardly menacing, Yeah, that's true. How about the capitals? I mean, it yeah, is a capital city. It's right near the state house. As, as, as an IUPUI grad, I'm disappointed. But the speedway is right there. Let's <laughs> the let's connect the two. Something like that. Something like that. The racers were a hockey team. It's, it's asking well. somewhere they're checking for so I just stole all, all those right. names from well, past teams. Let's all go right. back to the candy That's Indiana Week in Review for this week. Our panel is Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Chris Mitchum, John Schwannis of Indiana Lawmakers, and Nikki Kelly of the Indiana Capital Chronicle. You can find Indiana Week in Review's podcast and episodes at wfyi.org slash iwir or on the PBS app. I'm Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting. Join us next time because a lot can happen in an Indiana week. Opinions expressed are solely those of the panelists. Indiana Week in Review is a WFYI production in association with Indiana's public broadcasting stations.